A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 24, starting with verse 34. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. My master's wife Sarah has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. And my master made me swear an oath and said, You must not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I live, but go to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son. When I came to the spring today, I said, Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success to the journey on which I have come. See, I am standing beside this spring. If a young woman comes out to draw water, and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jar, and if she says to me, drink, and I'll draw water for your camels too. Let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, Please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I'll water your camels too. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed down and worshipped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, so I may know which way to turn. So they called Rebecca and asked her, Will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Then Rebecca and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The word of the Lord. A 
reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 7, starting with verse 15. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the sin of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, This is one of those weeks, as I prepared the sermon, where I just couldn't help thinking about you and your faces. I mean, I would hope I would think about you most of the time, and that's true. But uh, particularly the situation that as I talk with you and I'm in um, conversation with you guys about your lives, what you've been going through this summer and some of the changes and the things that that you've experienced. And um, I thought about the creative process, those of you who are musicians go through and releasing music, and the Thompsons released a song this week. It was wonderful, and, and, and others, and then the way that you play music, and then going and sharing your art with the world and the process that's involved in all of that. 
I've thought about those of you going to new jobs and starting new businesses, which has happened for several of you in this season, new academic opportunities that you've stepped into. I've thought about those of you who are able to get away for vacation or to go see family or just to get away and have fun. The summer seems like it's kind of the time that a lot of people tend to do that, and that's wonderful. It's a good thing. Summer is often a season of interrupted patterns, adjustments, changes in our schedule. Things aren't always consistent. Sometimes they're large things, big changes happened. Sometimes they're small. But my prayer for you, as I prayed for you this week, is that you would know God's presence with you in the midst of the change. That that consistency would be for for you um, there in God's voice and God's presence, even as the things surrounding us often change. One of the most important questions we need to ask, I think, during ordinary time and then summer and times of change is what are the burdens or the expectations that we carry in our lives that we don't need to be carrying? What are the things that we have just been thrown onto us or that we hold onto that we feel like are supposed to drive our life that we really need to let go of? What are the things that just get in the way? Our Old Testament reading seems fairly straightforward. In fact, some scholars say this is a transition story. (laughs) So in other words, what they're trying to say is that the the real action happens before this and after this, and this is kind of a bridge to help us get through the narrative. So what's happened is Sarah has died, and Abraham will soon die. And in order for the promise to continue, for Abraham to be a father of many nations, which we've been talking about and talking about this promise of Abraham being a father to many nations, in order for that to happen, there has to be a new matriarch. There has to be a new woman who's a head over the family. Isaac needs to get married. Abraham's son, Isaac, needs to be married. So here, this servant of Abraham is explaining to Rebekah's brother, Laban, how this has all happened how he's come across Rebekah and Rebekah will be Isaac's wife. So the servant relays that the Lord has blessed Abraham and he's become wealthy. And then the servant lists all these things the Lord has given to Abraham. And he says that God has shown kindness and faithfulness to Abraham. He's been faithful to him all the way through. And then the word blessed gets thrown around all over the place. Abraham's blessed. We see that multiple times. We'll see later that Rebekah is blessed. The whole family is blessed. Sarah has born a son in her old age. He recounts the fact that before he left Abraham, he swore an oath to him that he would find a a wife for Isaac. And it was supposed to come from Abraham's family. The servant then tells Laban, I prayed to the Lord. So I, I prayed to the Lord that I'd find this woman, this wife. And he says he anticipated that he would meet this young woman drawing water. Okay, so that in and of itself is kind of like a, Okay, you've narrowed it down pretty specifically. You're going to find her here at the well. Got it. And then he describes, the servant does, how he planned to ask her for a drink. And then he gets real specific with God. (laughs) He's like, I want to go and ask her for a drink, but then I don't want her to just give me water. I want her to offer to get water for all of my camels. (laughs) That's what he says. So this servant's being pretty bold with God. He's saying, this is exactly how I want to find a wife for Isaac. He wants to identify her by saying, not just for me, but for my camels as well. Now, giving somebody a little water from a well was fairly easy at the time. Something you could do for anybody. But drawing water for camels would be a big deal, 
a big undertaking, especially if the camels hadn't drunk for weeks. Camels can drink a lot, okay? So that would have been a big thing to ask. Rebecca shows up, and it says she did exactly as the servant prayed that she would. John Goldengay is a scholar, and he summarizes the situation this way. He says, it was an outrageous prayer, but God was okay with it. <laughs> so the servant then recounts how he asked Rebecca, whose, da- whose daughter are you? He put the ring in her nose, bracelet on her arms. These are all gifts from Abraham. And then he bowed down and praised the Lord because he knows it's God who led him to that place. But notice this, in this story and other stories in the Bible, it doesn't say the Lord did this. It doesn't say the Lord acted in this particular way. We see that some places in scripture, and then there's other places where it's like, no, the servant prayed to God and this stuff happened, but it doesn't say explicitly God did this. It's not until later that the servant looks back and reflects on all the ways that God was working. This is God working in the ordinary course of life. Walter Brueggemann writes, Yahweh has done nothing directly. There has been no sign or signal. There has been no seeking after or requesting guidance, but only the willing acknowledgement after the fact. So the servant says, I praise the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. The word led, when it says he's led by the Lord, it's found nowhere else in Genesis. Uh, In the Old Testament, it's, it's found a few times, and its best known usage, you'll be familiar with it, is Psalm 23. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And then it says, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The servant then, so he's talking to Laban. He's talking to Rebecca's brother. And he ends his speech by asking Laban for kindness and faithfulness. Now, if you remember, these are the same words used to describe how God has already cared for this family how God has cared for Abraham. So the servant is asking if the family, if Laban and his family will consent to this arrangement, will they respond with the kindness and faithfulness of God? As Rebecca prepares to leave, so she consents to this, the family consents to this, she's going to be married to Isaac. And as Rebecca prepares to leave, the people, her family, pray a blessing over her. So this corresponds to the blessing of Abraham. God's blessing is all over this. Brueggemann writes, As Abraham of the old generation ended richly blessed, so Rebekah, mother of the future generation, begins in blessing and with a rather imperial mandate for the land already promised. And then it tells us as Rebekah leaves, so she's blessed by her family, she's sent, and then she shows up in the land that they're in, the land of the, the Canaanites. And it tells us that Isaac meets her and that they get married. And it tells us at the end, Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This story, I want to suggest, is perhaps perfect for the season of ordinary time and the summer season in which we find ourselves because it represents transition. It features a lot of traveling. There's traveling all in this passage. Somebody's going here, somebody's going there. And then people get really thirsty from the heat is kind of relatable, right? But despite the practical perception, God's faithfulness is shown throughout this story. 
God is at work even if we don't see it expressed explicitly. This is why the servant praises God, because everything and every time belongs to God. In our reading, the servant has reflected on all the events that have unfolded. And looking back, he assigns meaning to them. He looks back and he sees God's faithfulness. One more quote from Brueggemann here. He says, The workings of God are not spectacular, not magical, not oddities. Disclosure of God comes by steady discernment and by readiness to trust the resilience that is present in the course of daily affairs. There is an understatedness about the action of the narrative, but it's not reticent or it's not hesitant about faith. It is an understatement that is ready to be sustained and profoundly grateful when gifts are given. So there's a couple questions I would hope we'd take from this reading. First of all, are you willing to be led? When we are tempted in our lives to control, to grasp, are we willing to allow God to set the agenda for us? Rather than expecting dramatic gestures, can we take life as it comes to us? And then second, are we willing to reflect, to discern, to stop and think about the ways in which the parts of our lives we believe just happen, they're just things that happen, may actually be God working in his great faithfulness to us and in his promise. Notice the emphasis of meditation and discernment in this story. The servant is able to retell the story to Laban, all that's happened, but he's attributing it to God's leading because he's reflected on it and he's gone, look at all the ways God was at work here. Then verse 63, I love this, says of Isaac, he went out to the field one evening to meditate. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Those camels are the entourage with Rebekah. This is when he meets Rebekah. Isaac meets his wife as he's in the midst of reflection, of meditation. This past week, there was a night, um, probably more than one night, but one night in particular that I got a little cranky. Okay? Um, the girls have been having trouble sleeping lately. That's just part of parenting. But Lucy really likes to, classic 10-year-old, drag her feet when going to bed, especially in the summertime. Doesn't really want to go to bed. Betty, at her age, she's in our bed a lot right now. <laughs> so when I ultimately go to bed, I'm the last one, and I've gotten Lucy to bed, and I've done all the, the things in the house that have to be done. I finally get to bed, and I've got to kind of find the sheets and find the comforter, and it's late at night, and I've got to get up the next morning. And some people can relate to this, I think. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and trying to kind of juggle all these things, and I just got cranky which is fine. We get cranky in life. It's fine. It happens to the best of us. But then in that moment, I, I was just hit. And I, I wish I could say this is always what happens. But in that moment, I was just hit with the reminder of what a gift both of my daughters really are. I couldn't sleep, so I did my usual Compline prayer that I do right before bed. And then I went back and I looked at the first photos we took when Lucy's birth mother chose us and reflected on that moment and what that meant. I went back then and looked at when we got the first ultrasound back for Betty after IVF, remembering that there was only one egg that was actually viable 
and going, okay, I guess we're going to risk this with just one. And it ended up being Betty. And in that moment, I, I was moved to tears with gratitude, thankfulness. Reflection and gratitude became the antidotes for my crankiness. <laughs> it's so important to remember that even in the moments where we don't see it, the moments where we're at our worst, the moments where we're frustrated, that that doesn't mean God is not at work and hasn't been at work. That's why reflection is so important and gratitude is so important, to stop and remember the ways that God has been faithful to us. This is what Jesus reminds John's disciples of when they come to visit him in prison. Or excuse me, when they, yeah, when they come to visit Jesus from John, who's in prison. They ask Jesus on behalf of John, are you the one who's to come or should we expect somebody else? Jesus then goes in this whole thing that without context doesn't really make sense to us because he starts talking about a spoiled generation and about like funerals and about parties and all this stuff and it doesn't really make sense. So what he's saying is he says this generation, this group of people around us are like spoiled children and they're crying out for us to dance and for us to mourn. He's acknowledging that the people of that generation have largely rejected Jesus and John. They've just shut, shut them down and rejected them. So he says they piped, so like they were at a wedding celebrating, they piped. But John wouldn't dance for them. <laughs> they wailed like they were having a funeral. They cried, but Jesus refused to mourn with them. Both John and Jesus have been rejected by the generation, even if their rejection doesn't make sense. Jesus points out the differences between his ministry and John's ministry. So John the Baptist was preaching more focused on judgment. That was John's the John the Baptist's mission. He was zealous. He fasted and he led others into fasting. He was a prophet. He was the one who was to prepare the way. He was serious, yet he was rejected. The people didn't like his call to repentance, so they said he was a demon. Jesus, by contrast, was more focused on celebration and invitation. So what Jesus points us to is the fact that judgment is necessary, but it's not the end of the story. The story is always pointing towards liberation, towards welcome. Yet, just like John was rejected, they said, hey, you're too serious, dude. You must have a demon. They look at Jesus and they reject him and they say, you're a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, these accusations against Jesus come from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. So Moses had just given warnings to the people of God. He was like, there's some people that you need to stay away from. And one of the people that you need to stay away from is what he called a rebellious son. So this is a person, this can be a warning to our children, right? But um, the, re the rebellious son is considered the one who refused to obey his parents, okay? And at that time... So he tells them, beware of the rebellious son. And then he says, this is a quote, they, then they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. So that's what you're supposed to say for Moses. So if someone is a rebellious son, his parents bring him to the elders of the town. And then the men of the town stone him to death. That's in Deuteronomy. So the underlying accusation of Jesus, I'm, that's not prescriptive, by the way, okay? We can unpack that later, okay? But the underlying accusation of Jesus is that he's a rebellious son. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's leaving 
leading Israel astray. So what do you do with a rebellious son? You need to get rid of him. So for the people, if you're too zealous in calling people to repent, like John, you're a demon. (laughs) If you're too loving and merciful to those on the underside of power, like Jesus, you're a rebellious son who needs to be stoned. Both of these are capital offenses. What they're basically saying is we need to get rid of these guys, Jesus and John. The world reacts violently to John and to Jesus. So Jesus says they're like these kids that sit in the marketplace and they think John has a demon and Jesus is immoral. Yet, Jesus says, wisdom is known by its actions. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is such that the Father has hidden it from those who have power in this world. And he's revealed it to the little ones. Stanley Hauerwas writes, only by becoming like children, only by being humbled like a child, will we recognize those greatest in heaven. Intelligence and wisdom are often names for the power and violence employed to sustain our illusions of superiority. The wise and learned people believed they were better positioned to know God's character. But the truth is only Jesus knows what God is like. Jesus begins to speak of himself in the language of this character from the Old Testament, wisdom. In the Old Testament, there's this character wisdom that shows up that's personified in Proverbs specifically, but it's kind of sometimes it's lady wisdom. It's this person who embodies wisdom. Jesus begins to speak of himself like that person. And wisdom was with God from the very beginning, from the foundations of the world. So he speaks of himself that way. This Jesus is the son who makes it possible for us to know that God is the father. Jesus then calls to himself all those who are weary and have heavy burdens. His promise is rest. And you probably know this passage Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So a yoke, if you know what a yoke is, it's like on oxen, they put it around their necks so that they can pull the cart to whatever they're supposed to pull. So it might seem strange to us if we talk about Jesus having a yoke, But we say it's easy and it's light. How does that work? How would an oxen have a yoke that's easy or that's light? Some Pharisees at the time had spoken of being called to carry the yoke of the law or the yoke of the Torah, the heavy burden of the Jewish law and all of its commandments. But by contrast, Jesus's yoke comes from his mercy and it's easy, he says, to carry. Now the yoke has two connotations to it. So the first is this thing you're carrying, this discipline training that you do to bring under the yoke. But the second thing is you're yoked to something, right? So when you have two oxen side by side, they're connected by this yoke. So you're yoked to something else. Both of those things are present. You're under something and you're connected to something. It's interesting, Hinduism has a similar idea. This is where yoga developed. Actually, the word yoga comes from the same word where we get the English word yoke. The word yoga just means yoke. It's a discipline pattern of living. 
So both these meanings, the under something and connected to something, are present in the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. He has an easy yoke. So, for example, Jesus interpreted the Sabbath laws not as external rules but as devotion to God. He interpreted divorce laws in terms of devotion to one's wife rather than casting her aside. Yet also, so in addition to being under something that's easy or that's light or that's different, there's a sense of being yoked together. The yoke is easier because Jesus carries it with us or better, for us. It's not that the way of Jesus is less demanding or that it's easier to accomplish or yeah, the way of, the way of Jesus is kind of do whatever you want. No, the way of Jesus requires everything our whole lives. But the good news is we're not called to pull it alone. Christ has done it on our behalf. He's accomplished it for us and we are yoked with him. Hauerwas says, yet it is surely the case that we can take on his yoke because he bore the yoke that only he could bear. That he did so makes possible our sharing in his yoke, which is now easy. It is easy because his yoke is a welcome alternative to the burdens that we carry that give no rest. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he says that he is gentle and humble in heart. Jesus is not here bragging about his virtue. He's not saying, hey, I'm really gentle, I'm really meek, I'm really humble in heart. No, He's saying that the authority found in the kingdom of God is different from the other authorities in the world. With, in the first century particularly, we see Herod and Pilate and Caesar who are violent and dominating and coercive. Jesus is saying, that's not my way. My yoke is not like that. I'm not trying to coerce you into the kingdom of God. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to dominate you into the kingdom of God. The way of Jesus is the way of giving and the way of self-giving love. But the challenge of that is this is so difficult for the world to understand because our world doesn't work like that. Our world is so broken that when we see true love and true giving in the flesh, we react with violence because we can't categorize that. We can't make sense of that. It's so different from our experience. Augustine, St. Augustine, writes of Jesus, you are to take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Listen to this. You're not learning from me how to refashion the fabric of the world nor to create all things visible and invisible, nor to work miracles and raise the dead. Rather, you are simply learning of me that I am meek and lowly in heart. Some of us carry lots of heavy expectations in our lives. I would say all of us do. Some of us carry heavy expectations to be good or to be excellent or not to make any mistakes. Some of us carry the burdens of performance, needing to be seen as something in the world or someone significant in the world. Some of us carry burdens related to safety or making sure, gosh, I got to be ready to withstand the next natural disaster or the hypothetical attack or the loss of job or the downturn in the market. And we become, we carry that burden that I've got to be safe in all circumstances. Now, there's nothing wrong with excellence and performance and safety. It's when we pursue those things as our final goal, 
When that becomes our definition of the good life, if I can just perform well enough, if I can just get everything right, if I can just be safe enough, then that really is what's going to give me the good life that I've always hoped for. It's when we pursue things in that way and the underlying fear that comes from that, what if I don't? That's when it becomes a problem. Some of the burdens we inherit or or we have are inherited. We're taught growing up what it means to be a good girl or a good boy which is supposed to translate into being a good citizen, a good wife, a good husband, a good friend, a good neighbor. Many of our burdens are religious. We're told there's certain things we can do or be that are acceptable to God or to the religious community. Some of our burdens are systemic. Our economic, political, and educational systems have structures that often create more burdens for those on the underside of power than those who have wealth and privilege. For those who carry these burdens, for all of us who wrestle with letting go of these burdens, for those who have been trampled and shamed and name-called, the gospel is good news. Those who are comfortable in the world as it is will react to the way of the kingdom of God. They won't know what to do with it. To the love of God, they'll react with violent rejection because it doesn't make sense in this world. But for those who are weary and burdened by the world as it is, by its expectations, by its calls to keep up, they find an easier yoke. It's not easier because it makes less demands. It's easier because of who we are yoked to. He is the humble one. He is not like those who manipulate to get their way. He is good all the way through, and he can be trusted. May we let go of our burdens. May we trust that God is at work underneath even the everyday things in our lives. May we trust that we are yoked together with the one who has accomplished it all on our behalf and leads us into the better way. Amen.